This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture, with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. There are a handful of moments in a person's professional life that really matter. Sometimes we don't recognize them until several years later. I know that I have a specific view that I frequently think back on and recognize them for what they are. Welcome to episode 74, Architectural Memories That Matter. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we're going to talk about architectural memories that matter. But not like the, I remember that one time I built that wall out of concrete that was awesome. These are more moments in our career that had a lasting impact on us in a way that changed either the way we behaved or that we thought about something. These are professional and practice memories. Having a podcast topic named professional and practice memories isn't all that great. So that's why we went with architectural memories that matter. Sounds like a sleeper. As always, Andrew and I have not discussed what the other was bringing to the conversation today, which I think to a certain extent is kind of the point to these sorts of episodes. We have each curated these stories to share with other people in an effort to provide some insight and wisdom into the journey that has currently brought us to where we are today. I think I have a few amazing stories to share, you know, just a drop in the Bob Borson library of stories bucket, but it also helps that I've told almost all of these stories that I'll be sharing today in some form or fashion during the last 11 years on the Life of an Architect website, which as of today is 1,021 blog posts. So Andrew, do you have some amazing stories to share today? I hope so. I mean, they may be not amazing, but they should, they're good, at least. Memorable, I hope. So we're setting the bar low. It is. It's really low. Yeah, we're, we're working it out, or I am maybe. It was hard for me to isolate which stories I wanted to share. And, and even once I did, I wasn't really sure what order I should share them in because it kind of made me think, oh, is the first story the most important? No, it's not necessarily the most important. So I don't know why I chose this one to start with. It's just the first one that popped in my mind. When I thought about this as a topic, I was trying to figure that out too. That I, I think I might end up going chronological. <laughs> well, that makes sense. Yeah, as maybe they fold on top of one another. Well, the first one that I'm going to cover today is called Sooner or Later, You Will Need to Eat Your Vegetables. And I will tell you that sentence was mentioned to me as I was giving notice to the principal of the firm where I was working at at the time. And so, so there I am. I'm in his office and I'm basically quitting. And he just kind of looks at me and says, sooner or later, you're going to have to eat your vegetables. And, you know, I'd, I'd gotten along. I'd done well in this firm. I wasn't there for very long. I had a terrific relationship with senior management and they were happy to have me there. And when I told them I was leaving, they weren't mad, but they weren't really happy either, to be honest. And I explained, well, I was bored and I wanted other challenges. What he told me has stuck with me ever since and has proved to be a fairly pivotal piece of advice throughout my entire career. And I've told him this before, by the way. I don't know that he remembers. I don't think him giving me advice is as memorable as the advice that I received. So <laughs> he told me when I, so when I gave him my notice and he was telling me the eat your vegetable stories, he told me that the prevailing opinion around the office where I was working was that if I was interested in the task at hand, everybody wanted me on their team. But when I wasn't interested in the task, I didn't bring much value to the process. You know, I was kind of an anchor, which 
Ouch. Mm -hmm. That hurt. Who wants to hear that? Was this early in your career? Oh, yeah. This would have been four years in. I mean, I know it was one of your many jobs. but (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this would have been like, this was my second job. The second job I ever had. So I was three, four, four years, four and a half years in, maybe. Okay. So obviously hearing that kind of stung because, you know, I had a pretty high opinion of myself. Hearing that was like, like, wow, that was stunned because, you know, the truth is, is that's not how I saw myself. So when somebody tells you that, and, and in fact, when he told me that, you know, I didn't bring much to the process or much value to the process if I wasn't interested in it, is when he said, sooner or later, you will need to eat your vegetables. Honestly, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what that message meant. He goes, I, I needed to change how I went about my business. And the point was to bring the same level of dedication and focus to all the tasks that I'm assigned. You know, it's easy to dedicate yourself to the fun stuff, but part of where your character is defined is how you deal with the stuff you don't want to do. And I'm telling you, if people can tell the difference based on your quality or your delivery or your performance, if you like something or you don't like something, that's a problem. It's a problem for them. And it's definitely a problem for you. That was a really, really helpful piece of information that I learned, even though it might've been the most painful thing that somebody had told me up to that point in my life. Difficult, I think, to possibly take at that early stage of your career also, right? I mean, there's a possibility that you might've just kind of blown that off and been like, man, you're, you're an idiot. I don't care. Like, what do you know? Kind of thing, right? I feel like in our youth, we have sometimes have that attitude about criticism, right? Even when it's good and constructive. You know, the way you put that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I I liked him. I got along really well with this guy. It would have been easy for me to dismiss it. But, you know, I I think when someone tells you that, if you do dismiss it, it's probably even more true than you think. (laughs) So. (laughs) Yeah. No, yeah. 100%, right? (laughs) Well, the other thing that always kind of resonates with me when I think about that you got to eat your vegetables first was the idea, you know, there's the whole eat your dessert first. And this had to do with this article. So these things were like in battle in my head because I was reading all these articles about healthy eating and all this kind of stuff. And this is not that long after I had my daughter, Kate, and she was a little kid and she's now 16 years old. There's still always parenting skills that you kind of discover almost daily. But when she was really little... I knew that she, like all kids, would much rather eat sugary stuff and hot dogs and chicken nuggets and all that kind of garbage. As the grown-up here, I know that this is not the sort of food that I wanted my child to eat, you know? And, you know, the whole, like, your body's a temple. You know, you are what you eat. And I don't want my kid eating sugar and garbage all the time. I was like, I'm going to teach her to have a good palate, healthy palate. Vegetables are delicious. So when I was trying to teach myself how to get my own daughter to see the value in eating healthy food, I read this article on the eating habits of healthy people. And if I just kind of distill that down, the article mentioned that using desserts or sugary stuff as an incentive to get the kids, you know, like our kids to eat their vegetables, it's a very, very bad, unhealthy thing to do because it teaches your kids that desserts are a reward and that healthy food is something you just have to fight your way through so you can get to the good stuff. Right. It's like a punishment or some kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, that's bad. And so the article then went on to say that people who tended to eat the food they liked first generally had more balanced diets and as a result were less likely to overeat or develop eating disorders down the road. Which you know what? 
That makes perfect sense to me. You know, if, if you don't say you got to eat all this other food before you can have the thing you really want to eat, like if you do that, you're training them to eat food when they're not hungry, they eat more than they want just so that they can have that cookie at the end of the meal. Or if you go, all right, eat the mm-hmm. cookie, whatever. You got to eat some of this other stuff too, but you can't just eat cookie. The reward aspect of it is taken away. So that in conflict with the eat your vegetables first, like what's, what's a healthier way of thinking about it? And so the eat your vegetables or eat your dessert first. And these analogies can easily be applied to all sorts of things in a person's life. And I think they're particularly well suited to the practice of architecture. There's the things you have to do. Those are the vegetables, right? You have to do the vegetables. And then there are the things that you want to do, which is like eat the dessert. And for me, if we can, if we kind of extend the story and the analogy out, the vegetables were the technical aspects of practice, the things like practice management, client development, building envelope detailing, all the stuff. These aren't generally considered fun, you know, not to me then, not when I was young. The dessert Mm -hmm. was nothing but design all the time. Like, I don't want to learn how to detail and keep waterproof a building and all the kind of vegetables part of architecture. I wanted the dessert. I wanted the design. I wanted the finished materials. That's what I wanted to do. Let the boring, mm-hmm. non-creative people deal with the practical aspects, right? <laughs> we all have a role to play. And apparently my role is to eat dessert, right? That's yeah. me. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> That's terrible. That's a terrible way to kind of process this. And so something happened when I started to think about it in that way. And it was, okay, develop your skill set and actually learn more about being an architect in the practice of architecture. So I don't see those technical things as the vegetables. And I don't see the design as the dessert, the distinction between those two things has disappeared for me now because I've adopted the mentality that you can't be a good designer if you don't understand how something gets built. And you'll never get the chance to build it or run an office in a manner that works on developing clients and maintains and educates and motivates all that stuff if you don't embrace all of these things. So there is no difference between dessert and vegetables. And the sooner you realize it, regardless of what you do for a living, the better off you're going to be. So that was my first moment that I go, that moment in my life, which was at this point, 26 years ago, has stuck with me. And I bet I think about that 10 times a year in some capacity. So I think that counts as my, as as my first architectural moment that matters. Mine is maybe a little bit different in its, in its origin, maybe. I mean, I think the takeaways might be similar, but this also happened for me early in my career. And maybe this one's just entitled How You Treat Others uh, as a way to sort of look at it, right? And, and this was probably, I might have been two years out of school you know, working. This is before I owned you know, the firm, but working there and went to a job site meeting that I had scheduled tentatively with the job site superintendent. And, I, you know, I told him I was coming from another job and that I would be there around around 10, 10, 15 or something like that. And I didn't really set a, a time frame. And then I show up at about, about 10, 15 or so. And the owner of the contracting company was there and the project manager and the job site superintendent. And they were all, you know, standing around waiting for me to show up to talk about this issue on the project. Oh, Lord. You know, I had barely started doing these site visits on my own, right? And this was really, you know, a fairly large project in the office at the time. You know, I just thought I was kind of swinging by to take a look at something and bring that information back to the office. And I showed up 
what apparently was considered light. And <laughs> the, the owner of the construction company just ripped me a new one. I mean, yelled at me in front of all these people for I'm, I'm probably 10 minutes straight. Oh. I mean, just berated me about all these things. And I, I had, it was just like a total ambush because hey, I wasn't expecting any of those other people to be there. And it seemed very casual, but that's not what happened. Right. Or not how it was, I guess, intended on the other side. And, you know, that whole, I just, I had to sit there and take it and, you know, being, you know, I was probably 25, 26 years old and this guy's in his fifties or sixties, just tearing into me. I mean, like it's probably one of the most intense yelling at that I've ever received in my life. But here's the question. Were you embarrassed? Did you feel shame? Did you like feel bad? Actually, I was angry. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I felt disrespected. And even though I didn't think that I, I was somebody that deserved a lot of respect because I, you know, I was young and I didn't know much, you know, I just felt disrespected and, and I was really angry about it. You know, even for the rest of that meeting, you know, I was given one word answers and, you know, not being very responsive and, you know, I didn't want to be there anymore. Again, that's something like, you talk about it six in my mind I and mean, I can tell you exactly like where on the job site I was standing and what phase all of those things about like it's a perfect picture in my mind about all this happening and, and really the takeaway that came out of that was that this was not the way that I wanted that relationship to be and for me at that point I decided or at least begin to formulate that notion that I really wanted to be in a non-adversarial relationship with the contractor. So I have to throw this out there. Your takeaway wasn't, yeah. don't be late. <laughs> it wasn't that. <laughs> that wasn't. No, because I wasn't late. But in their mind, they thought you were. So, But you're like, no, I wasn't late. And so the takeaway for you shifted from the, well, I wasn't late. So I'm going to focus on the, let's have a, a good working relationship with people. Yeah. yeah. I mean, let's treat each other with respect. Had I said the meeting is going to start at 10 o'clock and we had actually scheduled the meeting, Right. I mean, this wasn't even really a scheduled thing. That's why I was not, I, I wasn't late because I didn't really say I was going to be there at a certain time. And so, yeah, it was just more about this is not how it should be. It was one of those kind of like, well, when I'm in charge and I'm dealing with this, it, you know, I wouldn't stand since I was just an underling, right? Like had, had that happened to me now as a, or later in my career as the you know owner of the company, I'd have just left. I'm out of it. Just walked away. Yeah. Probably from getting yelled at like that because that's not, I mean, that's just not how you treat people, right? And right. so it, it just, that part of it is what stuck with me, right? Is that you, you can't, you're not going to achieve anything being so adversarial from the beginning, right? Because even this was, this was pretty early in the project. That was really the takeaway. And again, it really impacted me because I can tell you, you know, anytime I think about one of the worst memories, and I hate to start with the worst memory, but, you know, one of the worst things I ever think about, about being on a job site is this condition and how, it was so unnecessary because the, even the thing that we were there to discuss, it wasn't like major. It was some really sort of in, insignificant part of, well, should we move this, you know, four inches or not? Sure. You know, it just set that whole thing up and was completely unnecessary. And I think part of me at the time, even when I was younger, I had more of a temper. I've kind of mellowed with age. Mm -hmm. And so that was another really sort of strong element that came out of it. It was like, you should mellow down a little bit <laughs> and not, you know, not get so mad about things because you look like a jerk, right? You know, when you do those kind of things. But yeah, that's that's my first early, early career memory of just getting treated completely crappy and realizing that's not how I wanted it to be in the future. Well, sorry, I will say I did take away a little bit about verifying 
meetings <laughs> and things more than once. Right. So not that I thought I was late, but I said, well, maybe now in the future, I'm going to, I'm going to double check, right? Did we say this time and what time and, you know, make sure as opposed to having one phone conversation. So then I'll be there about here. <laughs> okay. So they look two good lessons learned from that one. And it, it's funny that you use that example because one of the stories I was going to tell, and I'm changing the order up because I think it follows your story very well. It's very, they're very similar in certain regards. Mm -hmm. And I thought I'd move it to this position to reinforce the fact that I think that every, I think most of the people who do what we do for a living go through a moment that's similar to what you happened to you about the story I'm about to tell that has a, an impact, a long lasting impact. And so for me, this one was your behavior matters, which is, I think we've all heard that expression and that you shouldn't ever judge a book by the cover. I tend to agree with this. I will admit that I do judge a book by the cover. <laughs> But since I am generally an open-minded person, this judgment doesn't have a negative or lasting aspect to it. And if I'm, if I miss, if I, if I, my, my initial assessment is off, everybody can recover from this. Right? So one of the questions that I had was a long time ago, I did this, I did this video interview as part of an ongoing AIA small firms roundtable series. And in it, one of the questions I was asked was tell us a short story about one of your biggest challenges. And I said, you know, obviously they don't know me very well because I don't tell short stories. <laughs> I'm more of a, a tall tales, <laughs> right? I'm, a, I'm, I'm kind of a tall tales kind of person. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I will acknowledge I am prone to hyperbole, but in this case, there was a story that came to mind and it's one that I associate with one of my biggest challenges. It happened many, many years ago. I think I was in my early thirties and this would have been well, at this point, I was pro this was probably 15 years ago, 18 years ago, something like that. And for the most part, the only bumps I've I experienced in my career up to this moment had more to do with boredom, right? Like I was bored and something happened or it caused a shift or whatever. So when I reflect back on this period, this story that I'm going to tell you, when I think back on this story now, I think it's interesting that the takeaway or the, what I'm trying to provide to other people is that you'll learn more from a negative experience in your career, certainly when you're younger, than you will from positive experiences. And so I had a commercial job mm -hmm. that I had inherited. Like day one, I start this firm. This project was already about to, about to go out for pricing and bidding and that kind of thing. I had nothing to do with the drawings. I had nothing to do with the design. I had no institutional knowledge of the project or the players or anything. And they're like, it's yours. It was a publicly bid project and it was awarded to this group. And I think I've mentioned this before, but things started going off the rails really fast. And the selected construction company had badly underestimated the total cost of the project. And so as a result, over the next two years during construction, they picked every possible fight they could to try to recoup it was about $400,000. They basically forgot a building in their bid. And so it's like we couldn't really tell because it was a big enough bid to where like it was death by a thousand cuts. And we found out that they'd forgotten this building, but it's public. So there's nothing we can do about it. We can't say, hey, they made a mistake. This is what it was. Pretty much every time I saw the owner of this construction company, he told me he was going to sue me and that he was going to crush and bury me while laying ruin to my career. And, you know, he's one of those guys that called me son Every time I saw him. 
son, I'm going to do this. And son, let me tell you, I've been doing this a long time. And son, this and son, that I hated it, actually hated it. And his whole goal, apparently, according to him, was direct my life. It also didn't help matters that on this construction project, that they went through three project managers and like four or five project superintendents. Because every time I would make some headway into creating some goodwill between me and the contractor, that person would either get fired or they just disappear. You know, the project was constantly delayed for one reason or another. And this contractor, if I remember correctly, sent over 400 RFIs for like just asking questions like, it's already in the drawings. This is in the drawings. I mean, it was, it was, he weaponized the RFI. I mean, it was, it was terrible. They -hmm. were trying to break me with paperwork, but they never did break me. And it was incredibly stressful. I mean, I was losing weight. I lost a lot of sleep. I mean, I hated it. And I couldn't figure out, like, why were they so aggressive? I mean, they just, they were making it personal. And I go, it's not personal. You made a mistake. Why can't you just own up to this mistake? Right? And we move forward, but that's, that's not how it was. So going through that experience mm-hmm. fundamentally changed who I was and how I did my job. But it was also the best thing that ever happened to me. Part of this is a kind of little additional piece of information. My father-in-law uh, told me, he goes, you, he goes, you, you would make a great contractor. And considering that he was a construction manager himself and had run projects that were almost worth a billion dollars, I figured if he's talking about construction, I should probably listen to it. And what was funny is, did he tell me that I would be great in construction? Like I'd be a great contractor because I have amazing insight into the construction process. Maybe it's because my knowledge of materials and methods is otherworldly. What exactly about it that... <laughs> made him say, you'd make a great contractor. He told me it was because I was good at yelling at people. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. My wife and I were visiting, you know, her parents and he heard me yelling at somebody on the phone. And this was during one of our trips. He heard me yell at somebody. And apparently I had just the right balance of condescension, irritation, and authority to my voice. And he told me that <laughs> and I, I'm sure he meant it as a compliment. Right? Like, hey, you you really mm-hmm. good at ripping into that guy. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is I really don't like yelling at people for any reason. I go, it's not productive. It doesn't accomplish anything. And it makes every step for the remainder of the project infinitely more difficult. Because of that project with that firm that had forgotten another building, that guy would write these lengthy emails and try to throw everybody under the bus. And he would like copy everybody. The mayor's copied on all these. I mean, and he came off as this whiny, not part of the team, not part of the solution. His whole bag was about pointing out what somebody else didn't do. It got to the point to where people stopped listening to him. And it's not that he was wrong on Mm -hmm. some of these. I mean, he always kind of really painted it with a different color brush than what it really was. He's trying to be a good soldier, right? He was trying to do what his company was telling him to do. But the problem was, is that everybody saw the character of the contractor was pretty much aligned with his behavior. He was acting like a jerk because he was a jerk. And so my takeaway from that was, you will be judged for how you act and your behavior matters. Changed my life. How that guy dealt with everything was so bad and so wrong that now I don't do that. If I have a problem with somebody, guess what I do? I call them, get on the phone. I don't send an email. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Snip it in the bud. You don't yell at them anymore either, or you still yell? No, I don't yell at people. I'm famous for not yelling. Famous. 
right? So it's not that different from yours. It has to do with how you treat people and how people treat you. And this mm -hmm. guy acted in a way that sure. I go, this is wrong. It's And he had, a, he had an opportunity to make me part of his group. Like I, I never rooted for his success. You know, if I had the ability yeah. when he said, this is not right. And I can say, well, it is right. But how can we work towards something that isn't the most egregious towards you? There was no, there was no collaboration to what we were doing because he had no compromised. Yeah, yeah. He had set up everything so that everything was adversarial and it was terrible. It was a terrible experience. <laughs> yeah. You know, the thing I think about that is the impact that that has like lasting, right? Like, I mean, I'm sure if you ever happened to come across that person again, you would not want to work with them at all, you know, and all those kinds of things that just the repercussions continue. Right. And I, I think at least, I mean, I find maybe not on a, on a national scale, but at least for sure on a sort of local or like state level scale that those kind of things aren't a secret. Right. I can't come across the number of times that I've talked about something like that or a specific contractor or a person and someone across the state kind of says, Oh yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. Or I know that person or they, they have that reputation already. Right. It, yeah. I've never heard or seen from that contractor or that construction firm ever again, ever. Yeah. All right, Andrew, what's your next story? I hate to continue the negativity, but <laughs> this is my last one. That's kind of got a, that comes from a bad thing. And, and really it, this is the first time that I got sued. <laughs> and that's, that's not actually dealing with the lawsuit, the, the lawsuits that I'm dealing with now. This was a sort of a smaller thing. And I actually learned a couple of lessons from this occurrence. What happened was that my, this was in the transition of when I bought my company. And anyway, what had happened was that a student had fallen through a window in a gymnasium. And it, I was, you know, my, the company was never notified. No one was ever notified. And then, you know, one year and 10 months of the two year statute of limitations, you know, we get served with a lawsuit, right? So this person did not come forward until almost two years later to file this lawsuit about falling through this window. You know what that suggests to me? That mm -hmm. suggests to me that whatever it was, their first reaction was not, hey, go get, go cash grab this. But somebody mm -hmm. at some point said, you know, you For could sure. go cash grab this. Yes, that's, I mean, that is exactly what happened. Yeah. I went through the process and this is really not about that, that kind of process, but I will say that that's sort of the first time uh, that my eyes were open to this, the true reality of liability where I didn't really do anything wrong. Uh, we didn't do anything wrong actually. And sort of how easy it was for me to be sued as an architect. And really what that did was change some of my processes, honestly, is really what the point of this is about documenting things, right? And it made me into this almost over-documenter of, you know, taking these crazy notes and, and making sure that every time there was a discussion and all these things are like heavily documented so that there was always some kind of proof about what happened and that you had that should you ever need it. Right. It, because that wasn't really a thing that that was done when I started and working for the small firm. And that wasn't kind of this guy's demo and, you know, not that he was a bad guy, but that just kind of wasn't how he did things, right? He was more of a nice and friendly and kind of easy go 
lucky kind of stuff and you know didn't seem to have any problems but this sort of shifted my idea about how you really can't always do that you can still act that way maybe but you've got to make sure that you sort of got that backup stuff in your pocket all the time just in case and the other sort of thing i learned about this was this was during the transition of my company and it made me also realize that you should pay people to give you advice on things that you don't know about <laughs> and the reason I say that is because I actually wasn't the architect in this project, right? I wasn't the architect of record or anything. It was actually from the previous company. And, you know, when I looked at buying the company uh, or making that transition to becoming an owner, I had a couple of people tell me that I should not buy a company, that I should just start a new one from scratch because I would, that would release me from a lot of liability. And, you know, in my naivete, I was thinking, well, you know, nothing's happened and this guy hasn't been sued in the all the time I've been working here. So that doesn't really seem to, you know, be the, I don't really need to do that because there was other reasons why I wanted to buy the company from certain aspects. But it just made me realize, right, that sometimes people know more than you about their specific field and you should listen right. to them. It's good advice. Yeah, you know, because I think sometimes as architects, we feel like, well, you know, I know about this and I know about that and I know a little bit about these things. And because that's kind of how we are, right? We're always, a, or a lot of us are that sort of inch deep, mile wide kind of thing, right? And we feel like, yeah, I got it. I get it. And that was a time where I realized, unfortunately, in hindsight, that I probably should have, you know, taken somebody else's advice and did it for a living and not thought that I, I kind of understood what was happening or what the repercussions of that would be. The funny thing about it was the, the lawsuit sort of ended, fizzled out and was really dumb, but it, it still sort of maybe kicked me in the pants a bit about you know, doing doing those couple of things and being really cognizant about that. I think it was after that that I started paying someone to do, you know, do the company taxes and stuff like that. Like really, it was like, okay, I'm going to shed some of these things. That was your first foray into the legal side of liability. Yeah, yeah, fun. Anyway, but it wasn't that big of a deal in hindsight. Now, dealing with the stuff I'm dealing with now, but at the time, it was very bad. Yeah, I hear those kind of stories, and I think I would lose sleep. It's part of the reason why when I had the opportunity to go out on my own, I didn't, because I thought, yeah. I, I like, I need people to help me process and move things along and, and be buffers and create kind of the gaps of, of knowledge. I know that how I handle certain stress, like some things that stress a lot of people out, they don't bother me. I don't mind working a lot. All these things are fine. But those things that kind of earwig themselves into your brain and you're just like, yeah. something bad could happen and you're just like waiting to find out just like if something bad's going to happen or how bad it's going to be, that stuff destroys me. Yeah. I just, I can't handle it. So luckily, knock on wood, I haven't had to learn. Now I have learned to take the notes part. And the truth is, is that story about the last one I told about how your mm -hmm. behavior matters. I took such ridiculously thorough notes and kept everything. They used all my paperwork in the, there was obviously there was a lawsuit at the end <laughs> and yeah. we got dismissed and it just came down between the city and that contractor mm -hmm. uh, is what it came down to. And we got, we got out of it, but it was one of those things that I had learned early on. Luckily, I didn't have to learn that lesson from a, a jeopardy standpoint. I just mm -hmm. did it because when I don't know how to do something, I tend to overdo it. In an, in an effort to make sure that I've covered my bases. Yeah. So it worked out pretty good, but yeah, maybe we should have titled this episode, the gruesome episode, because these are all <laughs> like, <laughs> don't touch this. Like this is hot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> kind of stories, right? <laughs>
Okay. I, I think I have some positive ones coming up, though. Do you? Maybe. All we'll right. We'll see. Yeah. Well, I've only got one more is all I've got. All right. I've only got one more. This falls into my perception is reality. So I, it, you can call it perception versus reality. Perception is reality. I mean, some people look at it different ways, but mm-hmm. perception is reality, I think, is, an, is a phrase that most people are familiar with it. And I've thought about this particular phrase probably more than any other one on today's list. Like it has served me well. And I use it as an example with almost every young person I mentor, every person who is like my architectural ward, like if they're working on my project and they're young and they're new and they haven't gone through it. I talk about this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. doesn't matter what you think. Only matters what they think. And right now, this is what they're thinking. And they start to defend themselves. I go, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Like just doesn't matter. Doesn't matter yeah. what you think. You don't matter. I'm not dismissing that. I'm not saying you don't matter. I'm yeah. saying how you perceive it is not what we're talking about here today. Mm-hmm. We're not having to deal with how you perceive it because you're not the client. You're not the one who's hired us to do what we need to do. We need to communicate in a language that they understand. And we're not doing that effectively because this is their perception, which means that is their reality. That's what it is. I learned this very valuable lesson, maybe around my second or third year out of college. I worked for a very, very small firm. I think it might've just been two of us at that point. And as a result of it just being me, so I was like 24, my boss was 34. I mean, he seemed much older to me then. Yeah, he was way older than you. Yeah, he seemed like, oh my God, that is a grown man. (laughs) (laughs) But because of the type of work we did, we did a lot of Genesis retail prototype design kind of thing. He traveled a lot. Like we would do get these projects and he would travel and I'd be stuck by myself, not really ever having had to do technical drawings or put together drawing sets. So I would just look at other things and how they were done in the past and just kind of logic my way through it. It was fine. Mm -hmm. As I kind of evolved in this job, I got a lot of FaceTime with clients and the clients weren't just like some regular, it would be like the CEO of of a multi-million dollar company because we did retail stores. So it's mm-hmm. the Storner, the Gap, we're meeting with the CEO of Gap. Like it yeah. wasn't, I never met with the CEO of Gap, but imagine it like that. Yeah. <laughs> you're 20, you're 24 year old meeting with that. Yeah. You know, someone who's actually gone to school to do whatever they're doing. And they're, they're probably much more seasoned in so many ways than I was at that moment. One day I'm in the office and the boss says, Hey, we need to have a chat. And I'm like, cool. And he goes, uh, I got a call from the client in the post. I called him Mr. Big. The client called and he said, he don't want to work with you anymore. And I was like, what? Wait, what? I don't understand this. And I said, that guy, he loves me. And he goes, no, (laughs) he doesn't (laughs) want to work with you because he said you make him feel stupid. And I was like, I I don't even understand. I'm 25 years old. I am right out of school. He's like 60 years old, super accomplished, runs a giant company. And somehow this kid who's one third his age is making him feel stupid. I go, that didn't even make sense to me. And he goes, you speak to him, according to him, he goes, the way you speak to him, it's like he's 10 years old, doesn't know anything. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. I am trying to explain to him what we're doing. I don't treat him like a kid. You know, I like him. He's a good guy. And he's like, you talk down to him and he doesn't like it. And the bottom line is that he doesn't want to work with you. And that's a problem for me. Right. This is my boss saying our client doesn't want to work with you. And so now 
that's my problem. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Hey, maybe if I just talk to him, he's like, no, <laughs> no, that's <laughs> not, he's the client. His perception is reality regardless. Get it. And I was like, that was a lesson I will, I'll never forget. And I don't claim that I've actually stopped talking down to people. I mean, and I know I still do it, <laughs> but I try not to. And I'm conscious of that behavior. I mean, I'm so careful with how I try to speak to clients. And I actually had a conversation with my wife at the time. And as always is kind of what she does. She succinctly made a supporting point that no two people have the same reality. And therefore they can't have the same perception of that reality. Uh, and since I love telling a story in attempt to explain another story, <laughs> no, let me put it this way. Cause I think this is the way that everybody gets right. If you can't project yourself into the, well, I don't talk down to people. I'm not that person that doesn't pertain to me. It's the whole mm -hmm. premise is shot. Let me present it a different way. Let's say you're in a restaurant and you think the service is garbage because you have to flag down your waiter constantly for like every possible thing. It's like, he didn't even know you're there one table over someone else thinks the service is fantastic because the waiter isn't constantly bugging them and they're not topping off their tea whenever it drops a half an inch, causing them to perform PhD level chemistry equations to get the right amount of ratio of sugar to tea and the mm -hmm. ice is melting. And since you don't use real sugar anyway, and do you need like an eighth of a packet to get the sugar back where it needs to be? Or is it more like a quarter of a packet? And next thing you know, all you're thinking about is you need to start drinking unsweetened tea and you hate your waiter. Yeah. So it's the same restaurant. It's the same waiter, same service. I think they suck. Somebody thinks they're great. Do you think they're going to get the same tip from each of us? No. I don't think so either. Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing. It's just, it's just how we perceive it. Neither one of us is wrong. I mean, it might be an overreaction on my part for them topping off the tea unnecessarily often. No, I think that's perfectly, I mean, I think that's a perfectly valid point. I mean, if you're a person that doesn't just get sweet tea and you get unsweetened tea and you fix it, you're doing that because you have a specific level of sugarness or whatever sweetness that you desire and that you have over time perfected that chemistry and concoction that you know exactly what it takes. Yeah. And so I don't want you just to walk by and carpet bomb me with a half inch of new tea every time yeah. I drink like one swallow, like leave me be for a while. Right. Quit hovering. Or if I, if I tell you no, then you don't ever come back. Y yes. <laughs> and then once I'm finished, I'm, I'm dying. Right? I'm yeah. thirsty. You're like, oh, my God, I need another glass of tea. So it's just different. And so the idea that perception is reality, if you can figure that out, that's a really important lesson. Thing that makes it important is not that you just understand the concept, is that you can put it in execution. Like you can actually put it into play. And I think this is the trait of a good designer, right? This is how this kind of spills over more into an architectural thing. I tell people the difference between being a pro and just like being not being a pro is being able to design things that are not your taste. If I can design something that's not what I would do normally, but it's what you want, that's a pro. That's, that's why I don't do this on the weekends. This is my job. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it has to do with me being able to project what you want into the solution. I have to put myself in their shoes. If I can't take myself out of some reality and put it into some perception to create an alternate reality, then I think that you're going to struggle as a designer, especially as a service provider. Yeah, I was going to say that that really gets to the point of, of us as architects. We are service providers, right? We're not artists just doing whatever the hell we want for the sake of our own business, right? But we are providing services to someone who can't make that transition or manifest their own ideas in the way that we can, right? But we are certainly providing that service for someone else. 
you have to be their proxy. Mm -hmm. You have to become them and their perception has to become your reality. That's what it is. It's a really, really important skill. Yeah. I think as a, as a young person, right, that's really difficult to maybe wrangle or, or deal with, right? Coming out of school, while you're in school, it's only your idea. Like yours is the only idea that matters. You're not servicing anyone else. You're making stuff up out of your own head. And to realize that that's not really how the profession works, that you're taking someone else's ideas and bringing them to life in reality. All right. So let's hear the next architectural memory that matters from your standpoint. Well, this one's going to be, I guess, maybe a more positive note. And it's a, and maybe it's a, it's a positive lesson learned. What I can say really, and this is, I guess, from some, some actions that I took myself, I should say, maybe that's what brings about, maybe I should title this when you got to get away. I've been just grinding myself to the bone working for my company in the eight to 10 years after I'd taken over and really spending maybe too much time and effort in keeping that thing afloat and you know, working through the operations and all those kinds of things. And really a lot of it was about learning, just having to deal with that learning curve. But in 2014, 2015, in a year time span in that, in those two years, I traveled to Chicago like four times and I really enjoyed it. And you know, I mean, you were there, I think for one or two of those times, it, it, but it was just really great for me. And at that point in my career, I was just really downtrodden and I was really starting to, I guess, just lose sort of that appetite and excitedness about the profession and traveling somewhere, especially like Chicago, multiple times, most of them were sort of work trips in a way. But again, getting out and getting away from my practice and, and sort of engaging in other things, especially there for, because it was architectural and all that kind of stuff. And that's what they were related to. But really the lesson that I learned from that was about having to kind of really drop what you're doing in a sense, right? And that you have to unplug or at least pull yourself away and then how that can really be reinvigorating. After that, I started to really try to do that more often because up until that time, I was like, I don't have time to travel. I can't take myself away from work. And it's related to kind of what we talked about last episode, right? With being your own boss, that kind of thing. But I realized that I had to, like I had to do that, right? In order to keep my enthusiasm for what I was doing. Right. And you just have to recharge. And especially, I think somebody like me, who quite a bit of an introvert that, you know, dealing with all that kind of stuff just drains me anyway, people in general, but to get away and recharge myself. And that was a really important lesson that I learned in those couple of, well, I mean, within a one year time period, but over that traveling to Chicago. And I think you do a better job of that probably than I do. You seem to travel a lot more than I do just historically, but it took me. I think that was probably the eighth or ninth year of operating my business to realize I got to make sure that this happens. I'm going to dive a stroke at my desk at the age of 40 or something. I'm not going to say that's funny, but I do have a question for you. Yeah. I think one of the biggest differences for me had to do with when I worked at a small firm, when I left, I never got away from the job because no one does your job in a small firm when you're not there. Like you might have someone who can help a little bit, but some questions you still have to take. You have to answer some calls you have to make. I mean, I went on a lot of these trips and I'm working like a dog and they were not relaxing. They were not refreshing. But I will tell you for the first time in 11 years, I went on vacation for spring break like we always do, but I would always work and my wife would always get mad at me for working. And this was the first time that I actually didn't do any work except for like four or five calls. <laughs> 
But for a week, if that's a week, that's not bad, right? That was like a miracle. That was such a yeah. big deal. And I didn't post, I didn't post to social media. That never, mm-hmm. I never do that. That was a big deal. Yeah, I realized that actually. Yeah. For sure. Because I was wondering what you were up to. But I mean, you, I, I can attest, you were radio, radio silent for me. I didn't hear from you at all that week. I needed it. I, you know, and part of it was an experiment to say, like, just how bad will it get if, if I unplug? Nothing. It was fine. <laughs> yeah. I know. The world didn't end. Even during that time, I'd been going on my sort of annual trip to Colorado in the summer where I actually don't have access. I'm forced to unplug. I was worried, right? It's around worry, worry, worry about what was happening. The whole idea I'd come back and my office was burned to the ground or something, right? Because nobody could get a hold of me. Right. Those kind of things. But I think it was at that trip or in that year where I traveled so much and realized everything still, you know, it all still goes okay. And I felt sort of refreshed by doing that. They really just kind of changed my perspective on things. And I think that's an important thing to learn. I mean, you hear it all the time and people, you know, at least to me all the time, people are saying, well, you got to, you got to get away and you have to leave work at work and blah, 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 blah. But like to really come to the fact, realizing that yourself and actually believing it, it is an important thing. You know what I wonder about this though? And this is when everyone's like, yeah, these guys this is great advice. And then I'm about to say what I'm going to say. And they're like, those guys. Uh, <laughs> well, let me hear it then. I don't think this is a problem that a 20 something has like unplugging and I got maybe. Yeah, I, true. I think you have to be a little seasoned or elevated in the position you have to where you have to work. Cause I know lots of people are at work now. They work like a dog, but when they leave, they don't work mm-hmm. and they're like, whatever, it's fine. That's like, I'm not going to do this. I think that you have to move downstream enough or climb the ladder or whatever it is enough to where you're the one that the client wants. Like when they call, they still want you. That still happens. Those calls I got, it's because I can't really, truly 100% unplug at certain mm-hmm. times. But people that are working my projects, yeah, generally speaking, when they're gone, I don't have to have you for this week. Go enjoy yourself. Yeah. We'll be okay. So I do think that the lesson that you're talking about, it's important. And it's one to put that program in place early and try to maintain it as you get older. It gets harder the older you get to do this. For sure, for sure. Yeah. And it gets for me that it wasn't in place at all, right? And so the, the realization of that I should put it in place was yeah. really the big part of it. Yeah. It requires a certain level of responsibility for that to be like super important, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So that's six architectural m- memories that matter. I think it's time to wrap up that episode because this is these are those are six golden nuggets <laughs> that you got for free. You don't yeah, have to yeah. learn. You don't have to go through something terrible. You don't have to do it anymore. That's right. Yes. You learn. Right? Yeah. Just like listen to this <laughs> and don't do what we did to learn that lesson. Right. Just, just listen. Yeah. That's it. That's what you got to exactly. do. Okay. So let's get into the silly part of today's episode. And it's the would you rather question. We really didn't spend any time thinking about this one. And I'll tell you, that's my fault because I came up with two for the last episode and we chose which one. And apparently I didn't write down the one that we didn't choose. So we're about to start recording today's episode. And Andrew's like, what's the question? I was like, I don't know. I didn't write it down. So we literally just chose this. So let's see how it goes. Mm. I will say the one thing I like about these would you rathers is they are shorter. Remember, that was one of the goals we had is that we didn't have like 20 minutes of hypotheticals. These end up being a lot shorter. And I think today's might be one of the shorter ones. I don't know. Let's find out. Could be. So here's the question. Would you rather be able to teleport anywhere 
or be able to read minds. You know what I think? Yeah. I think this is not as easy as, as you might think. <laughs> I don't know. I really, I, you know, sitting here, I thought, man, that's a, that's an easy answer. Like straight up because it would be teleport for me. Really? I, that would be like, like, yeah, as a guy that's always late. <laughs> yeah. To be able to teleport in it, like, oh, it's 10 o'clock. I'm late. I have a 15 minute drive. Oh, wait, no, I have a millisecond teleportation. I might be on time. <laughs> yeah, but here's the thing. This goes back. We've covered this before. Yeah. You start teleporting, the government's black bagging you and putting needles in your brain, uh, right? Because you're the only maybe. person that can teleport. Uh, that's not part of this question. Just what I read. I think it's <laughs> okay. That's fair. I would <laughs> rather not be black bagged by the government and have needles uh, put in my brain. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. All right. I thought about doing teleporting. Actually, I thought mm-hmm. I thought reading minds was the easy one because there's so many amazing things that could happen. But then I started thinking, well, then I'd actually hear about all these people that actually hate me or all I can hear <laughs> is them saying, oh my God, he's talking again. This is- Would you please shut up? Oh yes, there's all these terrible things that I don't really want to know. Yeah, yeah. And then I started thinking, if I could teleport, I could just say, you know what? I'm going to teleport to- Mexico to watch the sunset tonight and have a margarita on the beach and I'm going to teleport back at home to go to bed. Exactly. Right? Yeah. That's right. Like I'm saying, you know what? I feel like lunch in Paris. Don't. I'm there. Let's do it. You know? Yes. And then I'm back. The reason. That's only if you're not getting black bag though. Yeah. Yeah. I could, I could agree with that. You know, the, the reason though, I will tell you that I didn't pick reading minds and this is going to be, this is going to sound really terrible and it probably is. This is because I don't really care what other people think. <laughs> <laughs> like if i really be honest i don't care I, I wouldn't want to know that my initial reaction was what a leg up in business that you would have if you could actually yeah. like understand what True. like i'm giving a presentation and the client's going yeah 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 i already know all this stuff and i could go all right i'm gonna quit talking about it mm-hmm. or they'll go i wonder if they're doing this and then i could actually just like jump to that part that would be amazing but then i went yeah but i'd also hear all the people go like hey bill how you doing today Get away from me, you loser. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right? Yeah. I, go, I don't want to know that. Yeah. It's like the good with the bad. Yes. Yeah. And I, I think that if you, if you get rid of the black bag, <laughs> if you yeah. just say like straight up, it's got to be teleport. It's got to be at this point. Yeah, I think so. Because uh, again, you can't, you've got more, I mean, for me, you've got more control, like you said, right? With the teleport, that's sort of when I want, where I want, right? I guess we didn't talk about whether or not you could turn off on and off the sort of mind reading thing. Like if you could turn it on and off, it starts to become more appealing. If I'm just in a meeting and I want to turn it on and see what somebody's thinking, or, you know, if I'm walking through the stock exchange, and I hear something, you know, whatever it is, right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to turn it into the criminal aspect like we used to do. Yes. But you know, there's some way that if you could turn it on and off, it becomes more appealing. But if I'm just walking down the street and I hear everything, oh my God. You'd have to be able to turn it off, right? Or you'd go bonkers. If you just like, just, I, I got 80 people sitting here. If all I heard was everybody's thoughts constantly, you wouldn't survive. Yeah. You'd go crazy. So I think that the premise for this was that you could control it, but the, that's the problem. Mm-hmm. I would be creeping in everybody's brains all the time. <laughs> not a, not because I'm a creeper, but I don't know how you'd not do that. Like, I think that I would mm-hmm. invade people's privacy constantly if i had the ability just to kind of go wonder what they're thinking i think i would do it all the time yeah i think it's even worse or maybe not worse but would be more difficult it's like kids or your wife or you know your spouse your partner whatever to be like 
what are they really thinking right now? And like, I think that would be hard not to jump into that. Like, right, if you're having a discussion or, you know, like when I ask my kids, how was your day? And they go, good. You know, I read their mind and it's like, you know, really there's like 400 sentences. You know, there's this whole, this whole like diatribe about how their day was, but they're not telling me. And how do I not react? Yeah. You learn that they were bullied and you're like, well, I'm going to go beat some little kids later, you know, or something. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Or when I'm in an argument, like you're in an argument with your wife, right? How would you not want to just be like, all right, I'm going to figure this out. So I can beat her to the punch about whatever she's about to say next or, you know, however that works. Right. I feel like it's just, it'd be so incredible not to do that. I don't think you could be married and read their mind. I just don't think that would happen. I think that would be the end of any, like, I, I think it would. One, it's so disproportionate. You reading someone else's mind, but them not being able to read your mind, like there's no neutral. And I think that there would, like mm-hmm. the moments that you would read their mind the, that are most likely for you to read their mind would be the moments that you are, you most should not read their mind. Shouldn't. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I was going to ask, like, would you tell them? Yeah. Well, you can imagine, you wouldn't go, okay, well, what do you want for dinner? That's not the moment when you're going to read their mind. You're going to read their mind when you're like, what were you doing earlier? Nothing. Boom. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm get the answer. Who were you on the phone with? Yes. I don't. Yeah. I'm not suggesting that it's only when there's cheating involved, but just all the things no, no, when yeah, you shouldn't. That's when you want to know the most. It's not the casual stuff. And so my question would be though: is if that was the case, would you tell them? Like, would you tell your family or whoever? Hey, you know what? I woke up this morning and I can read minds. Besides the fact that they're going to tell you you're crazy and maybe want to check you into a you know a psychiatric facility, but. Would you tell them or would you keep it to yourself? I think that would be another question. You'd have to tell them. You'd have to tell them. Because then you have to make, you have to get them to collude with you so that when you go somewhere, they're saying, you need to find out what that guy's thinking and then come back and tell them. <laughs> right? That's true. That is fun. Yeah, that would be, that would make it fun. Yeah. You, you would become yeah. an instrument for them to do things. Like you might even say, hey, I need you to come to this meeting and listen. And then afterwards, yeah. tell me what the client was thinking. I mean, you'd be a secret weapon. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's for your partner to work day. Every day, every day. <laughs> he's going to sit in on this like major meeting. Yeah, for yeah, sure. They're all like, who's that guy? You're like, oh, he's just he's just auditing this meeting. Don't worry about him. Right? <laughs> oh. yeah. I was thinking about like reading my kids' coaches' minds and stuff, you know, and how that would Mm-mm. turn out. Mm-mm. All right, so look, let's wrap that up. I'm going to say, I'm going to say teleport because it's friendlier and there's more positive that comes out of it. That's what I'm going with. What do you yeah. teleport? I'm going to go with teleport too, of course. That's, that's, yeah, yeah. We'll say it's friendlier, but I could probably turn it into trouble. <laughs> of course. All right, so there you go. Another amazing episode in the bag. Hope you enjoyed it as well. Thank you for being with us today for episode 74, Architectural Memories That Matter. We would like to thank our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. If you liked today's episode, please take the next 15 seconds and head over to your favorite podcast listening app and hit that subscribe or follow button to get nice and toasty new episodes automatically downloaded every two weeks. While you're there, please consider leaving us a comment, and I would greatly appreciate it if you would leave us a five-star Eat Your Vegetables rating. Be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, links, info, and photos from this unforgettable episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. <laughs>